Okay, everybody knows that you're locked in, right? Locked in. Locked in for literature. Hey there, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event I founded at LIC Bar in April of 2015 in Long Island City, Queens. Right now it is the end of March 2020, and people are uh, isolated from each other and having a, a really hard time for many reasons. Um, and so for this week for the podcast, I wanted to go back to an event that we had a few years ago at a time when a lot of people were also having a hard time. But I found that this event that we had was really a wonderful chance to get together and find a sense of hope in just being able to talk together and have good times and good conversation. This event was November 15, 2016, and that was one week after the election in the United States that left a lot of people reeling. Um, it featured, our readers were Elisa Albert, Tanais, formerly Thani Nandini Islam, and Robin Rosserman. Now in this episode, you're going to hear the readings from that event. And if you want to listen to the panel discussion, you could just listen to the next episode. We are also going to be having our Queen's anecdotes this week in the panel discussion rather than the readings. So I do hope you enjoy this evening from November 15th, uh, 2016. We're going to start off with our first reader, Elisa Albert. Okay. Our first reader is Elisa Albert. Woo! Already applause, and they don't even know all the awesome things you've done. I'm about to tell you guys. Uh, She is the author of Afterbirth, The Book of Dahlia, and How This Night is Different, and the editor of the anthology Freud's Blind Spot. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in Tin House, The New York Times, Post Road, The Guardian, Gulf Coast, Commentary, Salon, Tablet, Los Angeles Review of Books, The Believer, The Rumpus, Time Magazine, on NPR, and in many anthologies. Um, I just want to read a couple quick things about her most recent book, Afterbirth. Are you reading from that tonight? Great. Uh, uh, this is uh, from the New York Times Book Review. It says, uh, Albert has inherited the house Grace Paley built with its narrow doorways just wide enough for wit and tragedy and blistering, exasperated love, and no one is better suited to manage that estate, to keep it unapologetically going, to keep its rooms of inquiry open, um, which I think is spot on. And also, uh, it's, it, I, I, I really agree with what Emily Gold said, so I'm just going to use her words. She says, this book takes your essay about likable female characters writes, fuck you on it in menstrual blood, then sets it on fire, then sets you on fire, then giggles, then makes s'mores over your smoldering corpse. Everybody, let's give it up for Elisa. I'm going to read from the beginning of Afterbirth, a novel set in a fictional upstate New York college town. College town. Um, And, uh, Yeah, it's the beginning, so nothing you need to know. Chapter 1, November. Should I stand up? I feel like I'm filleting for real. Oh, there we go. Wait, wait, wait. Here we go. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Freedom of movement is everything. I think so, yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll just move. Okay. Chapter one, November. The buildings are amazing in this shitbox town. 
late 18th century row houses, dirt basement colonial wonders, high-ceilinged Victorians, wood stoves, crappy plumbing, gracious proportions, faded grandeur, semi-rot, clawfoot bathtubs with old brass fixtures rusty as hell, here and there the odd sparkling restoration, someone's nouveau riche marble kitchen. Here's my favorite. Four-story brick, three windows wide, with a historical society landmark plaque. Built in 1868. Elaborate molding painted many shades of green. My friends Crispin and Jerry spent the better part of ten years rehabbing it. They're on sabbatical this year in Rome, those bastards. They sublet to this amazing poet with a visiting gig at the college, Minna Morris. I'm a little obsessed with her, by which I mean a lot, which I guess is what obsessed means. The parlor curtains are open and the lights are off. I drove Crisp and Jer to the airport and Crisp handed me an estate sale, mother of pearl cigarette case, perfectly filled with nine meticulously rolled joints. I teared up. Medicine man, please don't go. Listen, he lifted my chin and met my eyes in this avuncular way he has. You've come a long way. You're going to be fine. He said it slowly, like I might be very old, very stupid, or both. I have five joints left. The baby's first birthday approaches. Still, there are bad days. Today's not so bad. Today, I have fulfilled two imperatives. One, the baby is napping. Two, we are out of doors a few blocks from home. Anyway, Minna Morris. <laughs> the new father likes that one, huh? Um, Anyway, Minna Morris. Crisp gave me her contact info because we're supposed to be landlord proxy, Paul and I. Take care of anything that comes up with the house while they're gone. Minna Morris, quasi known as the bass player from the misogynists, girl band, organ, late 80s. Lots of better known girl bands talk about having been influenced by them. Cold this week and dark so early. Late afternoon and the light is dead. So it begins, months of early darkness and cold. November again, back around to another. Last November, a nightmare blur of newborn stitches, tears, antibiotics, awake, constipation, tears, wound, tears, awake, 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 limping, tears, screaming, tears, screaming, shit, piss, puke, tears. My weeks structured around a very occasional trip to the drive through donut place near the mall, baby dozing in the back, idling in the crappy old Jewish cemetery across the highway, heat cranked, reading names on crooked headstones, sipping an enormous too-sweet latte, tapping at the disappointing glow of my device. Faint whistle, there goes a train, to the city probably, 4.15, too late for the baby's nap now, too close to bedtime, but I've given up trying to control this shit. If you have an agenda, any needs or desires of your own, like, for example, to take a shower, take a dump, be somewhere at a given time, sit and think, you're screwed. The trick is to surrender completely. Take your moments when you get them. Don't dare want for more. Minna Morris, poet. Rock star here in Crisp and Jerry's house gives me an obscure little thrill. It does. I want to be friends. A third floor light goes on, and simultaneously the baby starts up with the whimpers. I take my cue, keep the stroller moving, always moving, my reflexive animal sway, respite over, 
maneuver down the block toward the river, up Chestnut, and on home. Put some cheese on crackers and call it dinner. Another day, gone. Okay, and I get it. I got it. I'm over. I no longer exist. This is why there's that ancient stipulation about the childless being ineligible for the study of religious mysticism. This is why there's all that talk about kid having as express strain to enlightenment. You can medicate, you can meditate, you can take peyote in the desert at sunrise, you can self-immolate, or you can have a baby and disappear. (laughs) Uh, Utrecht, New York. The valiant but disgusting bottomless cup. The filthy antique shop with unpredictable hours. The burrito bar with blurry pane glass. Windowless Aussies, the diviest bar ever. Embodiment of dive. Hilarious exaggeration of dive. Jaundiced, wispy-haired men in stonewashed denim smoking endless cigarettes and playing pool on a disintegrating table at 11 in the morning. The tiny cheesecake burlesque joint run by kids. It's funny how you start calling them kids who graduated a few years ago and are committed to local regeneration. They smoke weed and bake all day, act sort of put out when you come in wanting a slice of caramel toffee and some tea. Long empty storefront, recently empty storefront, long empty storefront, 200 miles directly up the river on the east side, 45 minutes past the sweet antiques, the second homes. A town, I guess you'd call it, a once-upon-a-time town. Some blocks of cheap, amazing, mostly run-down houses crying out for restoration by the likes of us. We are happy to oblige them, the houses. We live like kings. When Paul got this job, I was six months pregnant, and we thought, okay, yeah, go fuck yourself, Brooklyn. We spent like $100 on an amazing 1872 four-bedroom Italianate with a killer porch and congratulated ourselves on the excellent aesthetic of it all. No good school district for miles, low volume of hyper-ambitious creative aspirants, stoic, wide planks groaning wisely underfoot. Our accountant works out of the creaky Albany townhouse where Herman Melville spent part of his childhood. There's an okay coffee roaster, a tiny wine bar, a tinier used bookstore, and a shitbox convenience store. And the food co-op two towns over where I work Fridays like a good little citizen. Sometimes I even wear the baby around in a sling. The college in town is pretty much its own thing. Rich kids who didn't get into fill in the blank. And the town or quasi-town has been in varying stages of rot for a while. Some faculty live in this handful of blocks in these amazing intermittently neglected houses sloping down toward the overgrown banks of the river. Others live in head-shakingly unattractive suburbs, spreading out like rays from the sun of the mall. A stubborn few actually commute from the city, refuse to be separated from that fucking city, not even for wildly affordable pocket doors and stained glass and exquisite molding and antique tile and anti-glamorous slash glamorous social annihilation. In the early 19th century, Utrecht was the center of shirt cuff manufacturing. Big, bustling factories supported the entire town until a succession of patents changed shirt cuff manufacturing forever. Mass production, outsourcing, what have you, and Utrecht withered like a corpse. A dump, to be sure, but still a kind of particularly sweet Hudson Valley dump. A shirt cuff bigwig founded the college in 1845 because his son didn't get into Harvard. 
Remnants of the shirt cuff era abound. A leathery, delightful old girl band called the Cuffs. <laughs> the empty shell of the mill downriver. Once in a while, there's a spirited movement to turn it into some sort of performance space, a DIY community center they want to call the Downriver, but local bureaucrats crush that regenerative shit time and again, dashing the hopes of our sweet stoned cheesecake artistes. Few blocks in any direction are desperate slums, and on Sundays you can't so much as buy a newspaper within a mile, but there's a tiny unpretentious farmer's market in the courtyard of a vacant mini-mall on the edge of town, and... A chain pharmacy just opened a ways down Main Street in a long, empty storefront that was for a hundred years a jewelry store. Barlow and Sons, established 1893. You can still see remnants of the old gold lettering. The chain pharmacy didn't even bother to fully renovate, just slapped a fluorescent sign over the door and drywalled the interior. First official Minamoris sighting. My heart did an Olympic dive bulk section at the co-op, unwashed hair in loose knot, filling a bag with organic honey caramels. I watched her unwrap one and pop it into her mouth. Total insouciance, gorgeous creature. And she is way pregnant. Hard not to stare pregnant. I wrote to her months ago, hey, and if you need anything, and welcome to our shithole, and please don't hesitate, blah, blah an elaborately casual offer of tea or something anytime. Spent like half an hour trying to make it sound casual, cut down from the volumes in my heart. <laughs> Embarrassing. I have zero friends here. She responded immediately in full. Cool, thanks. Meanwhile, I devoured her book. Weird, beautiful, bewildered little prose poems about the summer of 1990, mostly just after the misogynist broke up, Roaming Europe, shooting up, regularly letting a disgusting man named Ivan pay to fuck her up the ass, pining for some nameless bastard with a family in Paris, and then her family brings her home and puts her away. Electroshock. And the best part is how she just kind of leaves you there, wondering if she'll make it out all right. Which, I mean, to whatever degree it seems she has, but Jesus makes my own fucked up shit seem downright housewifely. I held the book close when I finished, actually embraced the thing, had the inclination to rip out and ingest a page for the same reason you might get a tattoo, so it'll stay a part of you and edify you forever. Thank you. Guys, Elisa Albert. Okay, two things. I, I, I know, I'm going to, I remembered that. Thank you. Um, we do, um, by the way, thank you for the whiskey. It's already in my head. Tonight will be fun, guys. Um, yeah, I do ask all of our authors to say a little something about Queens before they read, but I wonder, because we're just free-forming it tonight, it's like a different kind of night, do you feel okay about doing all the Queens stuff to kick off our panel discussion? Yeah. yeah. That, are you okay with that, audience member? Okay. <laughs> okay, good. Good, I'm glad. Thank you for bringing it up. And let's uh, get introducing our second reader. Next, we have Robin Wasserman. Woo! 
Robin is the author of the novel Girls on Fire, which, by the way, great title, super appropriate. This is an amazing book. We have a fire behind us. I hope this inspires uh, the reading. Uh, uh, her writing has appeared or is forthcoming in the New York Times, Tin House, the VQR, BuzzFeed, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and several short story anthologies. A recent McDowell Colony Fellow, she is also the New York Times bestselling author of more than 10 novels for young adults. Indeed. Wow. Right? Wow. <laughs> and teaches in the low residency MFA program at Southern New Hampshire University. I'm just going to give you a couple uh, quick quotes here about Girls on Fire. NPR says, it's a perfectly constructed literary novel, nearly impossible to put down. Girls on Fire is an inferno. It's brutally gorgeous, and you know it could explode any time, but you can't turn away even for a second. And then the New York Times says, Explore, it explores the line where close female friendships can blur into obsession. Elisa, nice segue, right? And self-obliteration. At the heart of the dark story is an intoxicating and all-consuming friendship between two teenage girls. Let's give it up for Robin Watson. have to say that I was sitting on what turned out to be a very wet bench so I I did not have an accident <laughs> it's just what I want to establish here in case I spin around and there's wet <laughs> um, also I would like to say that I have never carried or tended to a child but I found after birth a book that like spoke to my soul so even if you don't do babies it's a good book <laughs> All right, um, this, is, this is, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, that's great, that's great, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm going to read two pieces from this book that I don't usually, have never read so out loud, so we'll see how that goes. Um, well, I'm in the mood. Um, so this, uh, the first piece, um, sort of picks up after one of the two main girls um, ends up kind of stranded at a party and has far too much to drink. How to dance like no one is watching, or dance like everyone is watching, pale flesh jiggling as you grind against denim and polyester and lacrosse muscles and twitching dicks. Writhe in your docks and jerk to the beat of the hip-hop blast. Let a hand find its way past a thin cotton waistband and stick its finger into your warm and wet. Wrap your arms around the closest body, press lips to neck and nape and groin. Laugh along with and louder than, and if it feels good, do it. Put your hands on yourself and rub and stroke. Let yourself moan. Think, look at these faces, my friends, look at their love and look at me shine. Don't think. Straddle something, a chair or a body. Lower your weight onto it, ride them cowboy, ride it hard while they pour beer on your head and you raise your face to the stream and your tongue to the sour splash. Then because they call for it, lick it off yourself and off the body and off the ground. Note the heat of skin, the fire that courses beneath the salt of sweat and tears. Slice your palm on the splintered edge of a broken glass and smear yourself with blood. Let the floor fall away and the horizon spin. Suck at flesh and whirl in place and throw your hands up in the air. This is how to party like you just don't care. <laughs> this probably shouldn't be a laugh line there. <laughs> um, 
Look at yourself, Lacey had said the first time she laced me into the corset, turned me to the mirror, made me see. It's like you were born to wear it. Don't you see, Dex, she told me. I saw a girl's face made with drastic colors and lips pursed in mock defiance, romance novel cleavage and black lace, hair with streaks of icy blue and leather cuff bracelets that whispered, tie me up, hold me down. Look at yourself, Lacey had said, but myself was gone. I thought, I look like someone else, and she is beautiful. I couldn't remember the night. I couldn't remember enough of the night. I remembered hands gathering me up. I remembered floating in strange arms, chandeliers overhead, and then stars and laughter that wasn't mine. I remembered fingers tugging at zippers and lace, a voice saying, leave her over there, another saying, turn her over so she doesn't drown in her own puke, all the voices chanting, puke, 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 and my train seal pride when I performed on command. <laughs> I ached everywhere, but hurt nowhere specific, and that seemed important. I lurched up the stairs. I'd been hungover before, but this was like some new Coke version of a hangover, different and deeply wrong. I closed myself into the bathroom, turned on the shower, waited for the water to heat for the night to return to me. I wanted to be clean. I wanted to sleep. Ahead of me, I knew, was grueling interrogation by my parents, lectures and scolding that I'd stayed out all night, made them worry, lost their trust all over again, and I'd have to sit through it while knowing my father was desperately hoping I wouldn't give him up, that if I kept quiet about him letting me go to the party, he'd find a way to compensate. I'd be grounded again. Grounding wouldn't extend to school, and I'd have to face all those faces who'd seen me lose control, who knew what I did, whatever I did. There would be whispers and rumors I would have to ignore. There would be stories of what and who, and I would, against my will, pay attention, try to piece together the night. I would be the story. I would be the joke. I would be the thing they'd left outside with the trash. All of that I knew. I couldn't know about the letter to the editor some officially concerned old woman would publish in the local paper about girls gone wild and the corrupting modern moral climate as encapsulated by the drunk sex, sex fiend who'd been found passed out half naked outside the old foster place, or that even though the girl went unnamed in the letter, the kindly security guard who found me would spread my name to his nearest and dearest until half the town was calling me a whore. Parents fish-eyeing my parents, their kids chafing under draconian new curfews, blaming me for all the ways they'd gotten screwed, that even my teachers would look at me differently like they'd seen me naked. I couldn't know I would be famous, the Mary Magdalene of Battle Creek, without my own personal savior, without anyone to rescue me from my own inequities, except the judgment of the town for my own good. I couldn't know I would go through it on my own, that when I called Lacey to tell her what had happened, to apologize or let her apologize or simply sit on the phone until I unclenched enough to let the tears fall, she wouldn't be there that she'd packed up in the middle of the night, just like she told me she would, that I was on my own now because I told her to go and she was gone. I didn't know. So when I stripped naked in the bathroom and saw myself, saw the words that had been sharpied all over my body, the things someone had written across my stomach and breasts and ass, the labels that wouldn't come off no matter how hard I scrubbed, in handwriting I didn't recognize but could recognize as the work of more than one person, slut and whore and skank and graffitied neatly below my belly button with an arrow pointing straight down, we was here, I thought, Lacey will save me. Lacey will avenge me. Lacey will hold me and whisper the magic words that will make this all right. I climbed into the shower and sagged against the wall and watched the words shine in the water, the words strange hands had inscribed on bare skin while I slept, strange hands redressing me, pulling underpants over thighs, strapping, 
snapping strapless bra in place, lacing corset. Before that, strange hands doing strange things, strange lips, strange fingers, strange dicks, all of them. I tried hot water streaming over me to remember what I had done, what I had let them do, who I had become in the night. The water burned and my skin burned, and still I believed I could endure it because soon I would have Lacey and I would not be alone. Um, so, um, I, I actually, I like wrote something to read last night about the election, but I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to read it. It's not any good yet, but also I realized that this second piece, which is very short from the book, actually like said what I wanted to say more than I said it. So I'm going to read this one. Um, and this is just a very short piece from the end in the voice of um, sort of the mothers of the town. They had all been girls once upon a time. If they were afraid now of their girls, it was only because they remembered what it was like. Girls grew up. Girls grew wild. Girls didn't know themselves and the sharp-toothed needs breathing within, and it was a mother's job not to let them. Girls today thought they didn't need their mothers, thought their mothers didn't understand when their mothers understood too well. Girls today didn't know what it was to march through crowded streets hoisting signs and screaming slogans, to kiss boys off to war, to watch the news and see boys burn, to lie in browning weeds and weave a crown of thorns, to wrinkle and bloat and sag, to watch doors close, life narrow, circumstances harden, to hate the girl you were for the life she chose for you, to want her back. Girls today wanted to believe they were different, that girls like them could never grow up into mothers like these. They let their girls believe this was true. They lied to their girls and they taught their girls how to lie to themselves. Girls today had to be made to believe, not just in a higher power, a permanent record, someone always watching. Girls had to believe that the world was hungry and waited to consume them. They had to believe in depravity and fragility in longing as a force that acted upon them, a force to be resisted. They had to believe that they were the fairer, the weaker, the vulnerable, that they could only be good girls or bad, and that the choice once made could never be revoked. They had to believe in the consequence of incursion. Girls had to believe there were limits on what a girl could be and that trespass would lead to punishment. They had to believe that they could find themselves in a doctor's office with scalpel and suction, or in an alley with panties at their ankles, or in a plastic bag tossed out with the trash. They had to believe that life was danger and that it was their own responsibility to stay safe and that nothing they did could guarantee that they would. If they believed this, they would build fortresses, they would wall themselves in, and they would endure. Girls had to believe in everything but their own power because if girls knew what they could do, imagine what they might. They told themselves that this was for the girls' own good. Sometimes they resented the responsibility. Sometimes they resented the girls. Girls today thought they could do anything. Girls burned bright, knew what they wanted, imagined they could take it, and it was glorious and it was terrifying. They couldn't remember ever burning so bright. Or they did remember, and remembering made things worse. They wanted for their girls. They wanted for their girls more than they wanted for themselves. This was the sacrifice they'd made. They wanted their girls to be safe, to do what they had to do to conform, to defer, to survive, to grow up. They wanted their girls never to grow up, never to stop burning. They wanted their girls to say fuck it, to see through the lies, to know their own strength. They wanted their girls to believe things could be different this time, and they wanted it to be true. You guys, Robin Wasserman.
Thank you for reading that passage at the end. It was a uh, really good thing to hear. Sort of right now. Uh, I don't know. The, the, the entire book is so engaging and so terrifying. And um, Girls on Fire, guys. A story bookshop has Girls on Fire and Afterbirth here. And of course, also Bright Lines. Um, but yeah, it's just, it just, Girls on Fire is just propels, propels in this idea of these friendships that you have as a teenage girl and it'll, I don't know if you've ever been a teenage girl or known a teenage girl, <laughs> uh, it's, it speaks a lot to that, like letting somebody else define who you are, um, in that really crazy time when you're figuring out who you are. So thank you for being here and reading that. Um, so we had... Wonderful readings from Elisa Albert and Robin Wasserman to start. We're going to have one more reading now from Fanny Nandini Islam. That's so great. Thank you. That's it. That's your entire introduction. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. No. Uh, Fanny Nandini Islam is the author of Bright Lines, published last year by Penguin. It was a finalist for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize the Edmund White Debut Fiction Award, the Brooklyn Eagles Literary Prize, and it was the inaugural selection of the First Lady of NYC's Gracie Book Club, which is pretty cool. Um, it's pretty cool that our city has a book club, right? Like, let's just think about that for a second. She is the founder of High Wildflower Botanica, a small batch perfume and candle line. And you guys should really check us out, these um, the candles. You have a whole line that's, you're still doing that line? That's amazing. The, 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 these candles are inspired by um, recently published books, and their sales help to benefit girls right now. It's a wonderful organization. So if you see these candles anywhere, they support a great cause. Um, let's see. Uh, she's a graduate of Brooklyn College MFA and Vassar College, and she lives in Brooklyn. And I just want to give a little, uh, read you a little part of a review of Bright Lines from Electric Literature by Jason Diamond, who is reading here himself in a few months. Um, Thani Nandini Islam has given Zadie Smith's white teeth an American cousin, where the characters of Bangladeshi origin are situated in America, Brooklyn to be exact, and not London. It's a story of immigrants and their children, family secrets, and feeling like a stranger in a place you're told is home. It's a damn fine first book, easily one of the best debuts of the year. Let's give it up for something. I'm gonna stand because I don't like to sit. Uh, okay, can you hear me? Uh, so that was a great little snippet from Jason because I think, you know, when you write a book and you're brown, people are like, it's an immigrant novel. And like those two words kind of like, I don't know if they make your heart sink because I'm very proud to be the child of immigrants and I'm very proud of my parents. So it doesn't make my heart sink, but it just feels kind of like someone put a little net around me and just tossed me into the river that they know. And I just, I don't, I don't feel like they know every immigrant group that you could possibly know because it's just not possible. So I think in this day and age after the election, being the child of immigrants, being a survivor, being a woman of color, all this stuff, being queer, I'm like, 100% turned up and like ramped to like fight. <laughs> so I'm proud of all this shit. Uh, so I'm just saying like, thank you for that little thing. Cause I am proud of writing a book that has immigrants at, at its center. Um, and I'm actually going to read something I've never read before, like Robin. Um, and 
this was inspired by the moon because the super moon, the freaking super, I feel like every other month is a super moon, but I guess apparently this was the greatest, grandest moon ever. So I don't know. The moon inspires me and I'm really into the pull of the moon. So this is an ode to the moon in my novel. But it's violent. <laughs> Anwar closed his eyes, recalling the first night that he and his comrade Rezwan had taken over command posts by themselves, without any of their other comrades. Their orders were to stake out a farmhouse in Kadipur. A farmer and his family had been burned alive by Rajakar twins, who had taken a killing tour of the hillside towns around Silet. Rajakars were like local travel guides for the Pakistani forces, traitors to Bangladesh. After the killing, the twins allegedly occupied the farmhouse and surrounding land, turning it into a morbid clubhouse to rape women and rest on their laurels. Anwar and Rezwan's training, swimming through leech-infested muddy swamps, was necessary for tonight. They rode to the farmland on their new black Royal Enfield motorcycle, which they'd claimed during their first guerrilla attack. They parked the motorcycle in a field of spinach and watermelon. The plants thrived despite their owner's absence. After surveying the farmhouse for the enemy, no one was there, they stopped at a trickling call, a tributary of the Peine River that irrigated the land. In the night waters, the full moon's reflection appeared. Anwar turned up to see the real moon, but it disappeared as soon as he looked. The entire sky had gone pitch black. He felt a shudder in his heart and glanced at Rezwan, who was busy with ablutions for the night's prayer. Something as silly as the moon in a puddle did not interest Rezwan. Ah, oh, what is it, man? asked Rezwan. The moon. What about the moon? I saw its reflection in the water, but now I cannot see it, said Anwar. It's disappeared. It's the passing of the clouds, the rotation of the earth, man. It veils your precious moon. She'll be back, said Rezwan, chuckling. It's the nature of Maya. You sound like my father. Anwar wondered if he had offended his friend by comparing him to his conservative archaeologist father. He clutched his bayonet, trying to relax. His father often spoke of Maya, also known as man's illusion, which kept him separated from the truth. The moon existed in the puddle, but not when he had looked up to behold it. And still he knew the truth. The moon existed even if Anwar didn't see it with his own eyes. Look, Anwar, there is your moon. They sat at the foot of the tree for a while without speaking, staring at the moon as it rose higher in the sky. Do you fear anything? asked Anwar. I fear God, said Rezwan. He replied without hesitation. I can't believe that. Oh, not in the way you think. Eternal punishment of how possibly meaningless all of this is. How he laughs at our stupidity. And I'm thinking, if I had a brother like yours, I'd cut his balls off. Anwar's brother's an asshole, so that's an aside. <laughs> I can't do that to my brother, Rezwan. Besides, I don't want to touch his balls. Point is, men like your brother are pre-programmed. They're perfect for war, but too indifferent to others to fight for us. Anwar wondered what would happen if he and Rezwan came upon these twin brothers, killed them. What made their killing right? and the brothers killing wrong. Anwar knew the answer he hoped for was true. Their soldiers, the Muktibahini, did not rape or raid or kill innocent people. But there were rumors, disturbing rumors. Muktibahini raped Bihari girls as revenge. Anwar did not want to believe this, 
but the way he'd seen a couple of his own comrades stroking their rifles, lusty and mad-eyed. Sometimes a grave doubt about independence flared in him. Anwar admitted this once, and the wisest move would be to remain with India. Remain with India, Rezwan thundered, and resign ourselves to being India's armpit? Fuck your mother, man. As soon as he said this favorite catchphrase of his, Rezwan grew remorseful and apologetic. I've got no mother to fuck, Anwar replied. On the hardest nights out here during the war, he found himself whispering for his mother, whom he had never known. Before sunrise, they headed back to the black forest, which lay on the border between Tamabil and Dauki, dividing East Pakistan and India. Once they reached the river, a boatman took them across to Dauki, the Indian side. They wheeled their motorcycle through a clearing just west of the BSF Jawan's post. It was a long shortcut to avoid dealing with the gun checkpoint. They came to a bridge composed entirely of gnarled rubber tree roots, which ran over a stream. The road from the bridge tapered into a barren moor. A single stone obelisk stand, stood on a hill erected by the ancient people of this land. As they entered the sacred land, the trees at the helm of the grove were sparse, flute-thin supari and beetle leaf trees. Deeper into the forest, everything multiplied and the air was thick with dew and the scent of burning teak. Rezwan brought a finger to his lips. For a well-built man, he was graceful. Anwar followed him toward a woman's cry, then a baby's wail. The harder they tried to be quiet, the more sounds he imagined. The smattering of laughter, exploded mortars, men crying. Anwar shook his head. Out here in the black forest, they were safe from the war. They followed the ominous timber to a circular house in the center of the woods. Once they arrived, Rezwan relaxed. He knelt beside the woman, nursing her child on the porch. He kissed her on the forehead. Hello, my love. And here now, on a bench in Brooklyn, Anwar chewed his overcooked halal beef kebab of questionable origin like a cannibalistic cow smacking his lips. He spat the meat into his napkin. The sun had drained his energy to eat, to move, to think anymore. He was glad he had made this time for Rezwan's daughter, Ella, whose remarkable likeness to her, his, her father saddened him. Not because it was a bad thing to be like one's father, but that he had spent the past 16 years playing at it, pretending to be her father. She was nearly 21, adult, an, an adult in her own right, but still Anwar wondered if he had made any impression upon her. He felt he'd failed to teach Ella who her parents had been, where she had come from. He hadn't wanted to haunt her childhood, he supposed, just as he found himself haunted. Rezwan's head trailed his highs like a broken memory. I have to type up this mess, this mess of the war on a piece of paper, Anwar told himself, remembering the brown parchment he'd once titled The Black Forest. He closed his eyes and fell asleep for some time. And when he awoke, Atlantic Mall was still as crowded as it had been when he sat down. He touched his face, which felt painfully raw. All this dreaming of the moon, I've been burned by the sun. Thank you. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and The Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. 
Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.